Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timber. From inside the centre square. time of day everyone this is episode 127 of americans watching the footy our round 22 recap benjamin castle here alongside my brother ethan in south san francisco california and uh both our teams lost this week by a combined margin of 109 points yeah a lot to go over finals race far from done i think i think you could say at this point looking at the ladder it's really a 12 team race Richmond is the cutoff point, yeah. Yeah, Richmond's done. I mean, there are 12 teams with at least 40 points, so that, you know, that's where your cutoff is. We're going to roll right into this thing, because there's a lot to talk about. Collingwood, 16-13-109, defeating Geelong, 15-11-101. For the second time in three weeks, the Cavs made a stupid lineup decision that I called out from the start, and it came back to haunt them. This time it was leaving Jake Cole-Jashny in over Jad Buse after... Doing absolutely nothing against Willie Rioli. Kolejashny was worse than nothing this week. Couple of bad turnovers, just leaving men open altogether. And it was a pretty crappy defensive game. And this just, this is not a premiership defense right now. Combine that with Sam DeConing losing his one-on-one matchup with Dan McStay, who played really well. And Tom Stewart having to play extra reckless to try to make up for that. Plus a midfield that just got their asses kicked for a whole lot of the third quarter. This was ugly. It was really... You know, it was a 19-point lead at one point in the second quarter, but Collingwood totally flipped the game around by the end of the second. First few minutes of the third quarter, we're going to dictate things, and right away, opening bounce of the second half should have been recalled, wasn't. Jordan Degoe center clearance, Dan McStay goal, led to a huge run in all. I believe it was, I got to count here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Collingwood, eight Collingwood goals in a row at one point in this game. Simply put, the midfield couldn't keep up, which was to be expected. The defense didn't play like a premiership defense, and Jeremy Cameron kicked seven goals, yet missed a couple of set shots in the fourth that could have made things really interesting because there was a push to get back in this game. Got it down to nine at one point with 15 minutes left, but could have had it down to four. And that's, there was a string of set shots missed early in the fourth where, yeah, things could have gotten really interesting. The race for finals is not dead. Got to win the final two. Got to beat the Saints and Bulldogs. But losing these guys is really fucking annoying. You know the worst part of it? Well, there are a couple worst parts of it. Uh, the fact that Jalal are the only team to have kicked six goals in the first quarter against Collingwood this year. And they've done it twice. And they've lost both of those games. And then we saw this coming. And then even with you know a couple of questionable things going Cameron's way for a couple of his goals, there was a case of playing on outside the boundary that was scrutinized a lot. And even with that, we knew where this game would be one lost. Also, Mitch Nevitt wasn't in. Yeah, um, Collingwood fans 
I figured out what the issue is. They act like the world's out to get them. They think everything's a conspiracy against them. They act like they're these victims. If anyone treated them the way they treat other fans, they would. It's, it's, it's just it's just really fucking hypocritical. And I see why everyone hates them. Like their actual team is mostly likable other than Braden Maynard, who, to his credit, seems like a really good guy off the field and just a total twat on it, which like a lot of guys have that attitude. I respect it. I think that's kind of Mason Cox's thing, too. Like Mason knows he gets up on you on the field and he's a pretty good guy off of it. But yeah, this was a winnable game, and the defense didn't let it remain winnable. You had things like, let's see, a Cola Jashney handball for Tom Stewart, where neither of them were really paying attention to each other. Really interesting Asava Radagalea game. I thought he played well. His marking ability was on display. He did have, like, seven turnovers, but I think if utilized properly, even without Jack Henry, he can be a really solid piece. I think the best thing for Asava, get an intercept mark, and then outlet it to Stewart or Tui or someone else to move the ball because I don't trust him moving it. But in terms of actually intercepting and not giving away freeze, he really worked on his craft there and done a really good job. And and I'm I'm satisfied with that. Um, we want to talk about bad calls, though. It's like there were a dozen bad calls in this game, 10 of which probably went against the Cats. Just the two most egregious ones went against Collingwood, so their fans are going to bitch about that and act like the league's out to get them. Having said that, I don't think any one call decide this game. It was a game that Collingwood deserved to win. And oh, oh, no doubt. But the opening bounce for the second half, not getting recalled. That one where it was like a two on two in the goal square and there was an obvious push in the back, not called. Oh, that that was the one where uh, I think it was Taylor Adams with a push on Zach Guthrie. Yes. That was awful. Yeah, that, that, Guthrie just standing there behind the play after. It was like the one thing he did wrong all night. No, that, I, I really like how Zach Guthrie's been playing and he's had a great season altogether. He's just been quietly really solid. Other highlights. Um, apparently now there's no descent fifty because Braden Maynard could have earned two of them. Yeah, like yes, Cameron probably marked that ball out of bounds, but like you're gonna react like that. You should be getting a fifty if either, either a week ago saying look at the replay gets you a fifty. Now losing your shit after seeing a replay doesn't. Where's the fucking consistency? The consistency, unfortunately, is there is no is inconsistency. So this result. Nearly locks up the modern premiership for Collingwood. You would expect them to at least beat Essendon round 24 to take care of that, if not also beat the Lions this coming Friday. But meanwhile, Geelong have to beat the Saints this coming week, and then the Bulldogs at Cardinia Park round 24. What are the adjustments that are needed, considering not only the injuries they suffered, Gary Rowan going out early with a hip or a doctor? injury? It was very early sub-activation for both teams because Darcy Moore went down with a hamstring injury as well. He won't be playing home and away. And Jack Ginneman was the right kind of sub to have on for this game. Very good choice there. Not only rewarding the FL form, but making sense with Geelong being so easy of caving into pressure. All right, first off, if Cam Guthrie can go, you need him in there because you need someone other than Tom Atkins that can win ground balls. Otherwise, Mitch Nevitt is a must yeah. for Parfit. Um, I mean, you need to be able to put Max Holmes back on the wing. Max Holmes is an A-plus wing, but he cannot at his current stage. Maybe he will one day, considering that he's only 20. But as of now, he cannot go toe-to-toe with top midfielders. And it was a much better game for Tom Mitchell, Scott Pendlebury, the whole crew there. Josh Dacos, 38 disposals to lead all players. He was really good. But Dacos, with a decent amount of wing time, and and when Holmes was over there, he still won that matchup. Nevitt seems like an obvious in, but we know that that won't happen. And the other concern is with Reese Stanley being in doubt for round 23, what's the move to match up against Rowan Marshall? 
I think it's Shannon Neal. I think that's actually a pretty good one. So Neal, this week, playing in Tom Hawkins' spot. Could not hit a set shot. One of the other things that hurt in that fourth quarter. But really good marking, really big physical presence. I think he would actually be a very like-for-like matchup for Marshall in a lot of ways. So I would definitely slide him there if Stanley's unavailable. Other than that, yeah, Max Holmes, you need more interior midfielders to let Holmes play on the outside and get Jake Cole-Jashley out of there, get Jed Buz in, and it's time to stop playing Brandon Parfit. Now, I thought Jack Bowes wasn't very good, but the consensus from other fans seemed to be when he actually got the ball, he was really sealed with it. So is he another one of the guys that you might need to place a bit more on the interior to allow Holmes to do Gritter work kind of have, have Bose like just off the back of contests. Yeah, people like the way Bose uses the ball. So get him in there, get him dirty, get him using the ball more. I think you'd also, you know, we saw during that six goal first quarter, Brad Close was heavily involved. He wasn't as active after that. You got to have him involved and try to get the same sort of performance out of Atkins, Dangerfield, Duncan, Smith. They did their jobs. Also, Ollie Henry kicked four goals, which was cool. It's, it's really funny. You know, you can't say anything mean about Jack Ginneman, but. Ollie Henry, you know, all, all, no restrictions there. Speaking of Ginevan, though, he changed the game with his work as the sub. Having both him and Bobby Hill allowed for Collingwood's small forwards to really run wild. And I just thought they both played an exceptional game. Ginevan especially, you know, even if his numbers were huge, he changed the game and deserves a lot of credit there as really just Collingwood's small forwards altogether, whether it was the pressure they put on, their movement with the ball. It was Ginevan's first game in... 10 rounds that I would not be shocked to see him as the sub yet again. Yeah, or if you're managing someone because they're in a position to do that, you just bring them into the full 22. Again, they just need two points in order to wrap up the minor premiership. Eight points ahead, ahead of the second place uh, Brisbane Lions. More on that later. Also, on the positive front, Brian had two more assists. He now ties Jason Akermanis with 39 for the home and away record. If this effort had been there against Frio, or GWS. Yeah, GWS, honestly, it's, I don't know, but definitely against Frio a couple weeks ago, it would be one more win to finals instead of two. And that's what's so frustrating. Like, as bad as some of the execution was defensively, like the really uncharacteristic miscommunication and shit, still could have won this game. And you play like this against pretty much anyone outside of the top four, you're going to win. So that was really irritating. Well, they don't have any of the top four sides coming home, so a glimmer of hope is there then? Yeah, there's... There's no more room for error, though. You mentioned Josh Dacos's 38 disposals. He led the game, had seven marks at 564 meters gained. One of the players in line for three votes. You can see Brody Majek getting high up in there as well, kicking five goals straight. Jake Kolajashi not playing him anywhere near closely enough. I believe that's nine goals that Kolajashi's main assignments have kicked the last two weeks because Willie Rioli kicked four straight. Brandon Maynard, 26 disposals, seven marks at 583 meters. I mentioned better gains for Tom Mitchell and Scott Pendlebury. Mitchell with 24 disposals, 16 contested, and 8 tackles. Pendlebury a goal from 21 and 7 tackles. But the other midfield piece that had gone quiet for a few weeks and really woke up in this game was Pat Lipinski. Lipinski with 25 disposals, 13 contested, and 8 tackles. If Pendlebury isn't able to cut it at the center bounce and you need somebody else there with Nick Dacos out, Lipinski is one of the prime candidates to step up, and he definitely did in this game. Jack Crisp with 23 disposals. Taylor Adams kicked 1-1 from 22 with 12 score involvements. I still contend that if it's not Nick Dacos winning the Norm Smith medal for Collingwood, it will be Taylor Adams. 
He was back in form after a couple of down games. Jack Crisp as well. Isaac Quinter with 22 disposals as well, leading the way from the back. Didn't play you know, as closely on Brian Myers as I thought he would have, but played well enough as that loose, small kind of half back. Collingwood were the more efficient team inside 50, going at two-thirds disposal efficiency to Geelong 51%, which is nothing to slouch at, but some of the misconnections there definitely hurt the Cats late. Collingwood also tighter with the ball as they committed 11 fewer turnovers. And whereas you had a couple big pressure leaders for Cats, primarily Tom Atkins, it was the whole team for the Pies, and they were plus eight on tackles inside 50, 12 to four. And I agree with you, Ethan. I would love to see Jack Ginnivan and Bobby Hill play together in the 22 the rest of the way. It's just hard to find room for everybody. Afkins led the Cats with 34 disposals, 19 contested possessions, eight clearances, eight tackles. Saw a comment. Things on Instagram saying, you know, he might not be the best player, but you know he's going to put his ass out there every week, and I fully agree with that. Patrick Dangerfield has been in really good form the last couple weeks. A goal, 26 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 12 score involvements, and 9 clearances. Mitch Duncan, 24 disposals. Isaac Smith, who now has two home and away games left and hopefully another finals run in his career. Uh, 22 disposals, 9 marks, 477 meters. Tanner Brune, 18 disposals and 7 clearances. I still don't know what to make of him. Jeremy Cameron, despite some set shot issues, 7-4 off just 14 disposals. No Tom Hawkins, no problem for him. I mean, if you score 101, you should be able to win. Uh, Tom Stewart had 9 intercepts. Ollie Henry kicked 4 straight. Henry kicking well against Collingwood despite the result is something that we can still smile about. He needs to beat them, though. When he does... I need him to give like the fuck yeah, like Sam Piconi after beating Tom last year. So both the Saturday games began at 1.45 p.m. local time because they moved up Sydney and Gold Coast so that the air would be mostly clear for the Matildas. But over at Marvel Stadium, it was North 12.577, defeated by Essendon 13.886. 2023 Essendon, 2022 Minnesota Vikings. I see a lot of similarities. Well, Essendon have beaten North twice by a combined 15 points. They have a number of these closer wins against teams that we would say are clearly inferior. Shame that Ben Cunnington couldn't go out with a win. This was his final game. Did pick up two goals. He got the second goal of the game to bring it out to a 12-0 lead for North. And then one of the final goals as well. You could tell how much the whole club has rallied around him and cares about him. Glad that he was able to get back in. North led this game by five at both quarter time and half time. They were dominant in terms of pressure and possession, but their last kicks let them down. They only had two scores from their first 10 inside 50s. Curtis Taylor did a good job limiting Zach Merritt, but once Merritt moved to half forward for the second half, not only did Essendon lift their pressure in the forward half, but North just weren't able to adjust. It also meant Taylor went with him, and Essendon had an extra man in defense, and that shored things up there. North also weren't able to use their sub tactically because Jackson Archer went down injured, so that may have affected some things there. Essendon turned things around with a 5-goal to 3 third quarter to lead by 7 going into the last. North didn't ever grab the lead in the fourth quarter. He got a huge first AFL goal for Elijah Sadas at about the midway point. And once Eddie Ford missed the next shot, I had a feeling that it was kind of over, and it was. Kyle Lankford had three goals again, as did Nick Martin. And with Merritt going up to play at half board, Darcy Parrish was 
the disposal leader and probably best on ground with 33 disposals, nine clearances, and 679 meters gained. My observations from this game were minimal because, you know, it ended up not being offset from the one I was in charge of, but I've got a few things. First off, even though we didn't get to see Ben Cunnington at the height of his career, you can tell how important he is to the club. You could see, you know, like the celebration last year after the win over Richmond, that was telling. And remember, that was a game where he wasn't playing. He was in the on the race with uh, with Sonia Hood there. And Cunnington had a clear impact at the 450 stoppages. Still really hard to bring down even in his final game. I was thinking maybe he was kind of taking Hugh Greenwood's spot this week. And with the 24 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and 10 clearances he had, that seemed to be the case. Other than Cunnington, George Wardlaw, despite only having 50% time on ground, was big in terms of the contested tackles. 14 disposals, but 11 contested and 9 tackles in just over half a game on the field. When he's playing full games, when he still when you give him a couple more years, he may be as hard to stop as Cunnington was at his peak. My other observations from this game, North never had that one stretch where they just completely capsized. They were just outplayed, and you know, it was clear Essendon were the better team, but not by enough to give you the impression that this should be a team in the 8th. And I think... Just about everyone out there doesn't want Essendon to be in the eight, not necessarily if you have a grudge against them. I made the observation, and I'm in part biased because I'm used to beating the shit out of them now, but I think they're the most likable of the big four by a long shot. Like, I think they'd be the most tolerable team to struggle against out of them if you had to pick one. Richmond second there, and then Carlton and Collingwood way off, but they're just clearly not on the level of those other eight. I think this has been a better season than expected for the Bobbers, but I think we'd all like to see them not make it. And considering that they are currently at 44 points with GWS and Collingwood remaining, there's a good chance they don't make it. If they do make it, I'll actually be impressed because they'll have gotten through, even if, say, they face a Collingwood team resting everybody, they'll have had to get through a tough GWS opponent this coming week on the road. Um, My other thing, Elijah Sost, fuck, he's good. Remember the start of the year, the start Matthias Filippo had, and then the run Bailey Humphrey had around when the Suns were up at Darwin. It was like, damn, maybe Essendon probably you know could have drafted one of these guys instead. Well, now that Sadas is actually healthy, we're seeing what he can do, and we're seeing why he was drafted where he was. You know, if you look back at the 2022 draft, so far of the like super high picks. The least impressive one has actually been Aaron Cadman out of the top five. No disrespect to him. He just kicked eight on the ball ends this past week in the VFL. He just hasn't been on the same level as, you know, Ashcroft, Sheasel, Wardlaw, Sadas. I would say, he'd, like, the top tier is clearly Ashcroft, Sheasel, and what we've seen in his brief time, Sadas, then Wardlaw, then Cadman. But, yeah, that pick looks a lot better now. He looks really good. And I look forward to watching him in the years to come, you know, in line with the Women's World Cup theme. I've been watching a lot of kids that are significantly younger than me with incredible athletic ability, and 18-year-old Elijah Sadas is on that list. The one other big thing here, and the disappointing part for North, is that Jackson was criticized on socials a lot for some of the kicks he had in defense. He very often was the first man to get the ball in the defensive 50, and then had some late and longer kicks that came back in, cost North uh, the chance to build, but he also wasn't supported enough. He didn't have players leading back to him for shorter options, so that's a structural issue there as well. Glad that North were able to stay in this, even if they didn't get the result. 
I want them to get another win, but it's going to be tough for them. I mean, how hilarious would it be if they beat Richmond for the second year in a row? I mean, that game is basically a dead rubber now, but it would be funny. Although I think it's more going to be, you know, a send off for Trent Cotchin than anything else, even if he does play at Port the following week. I know Jack Revolt had said if he was going to retire, that would be a game to do something with. So if it's going to happen, coming week would be his last game. Top performers other than Darcy Parrish's stats I already gave. Nick Martin kicked three goals straight from 32 disposals, nine score involvements, and 514 meters gained. With the whole team improving around him, we're realizing his value both on the inside and outside, and he's already got a case for the All-Australian team. Not dead Ben Hobbs, or I guess he's the Goblin. I guess kind of Hobgoblin, whatever, I get it. It's a good one. I, I get it. I still like not dead Ben. That arose from when it was just like this black and white photo of him. The photo announcing his debut made it look like he died, similar to the, like, thank you, Stuart Do photo this year. Or like going back to what CJ McCall was announced in like a, an NBPA leadership post and it just also looked like he had died. But Hobbs had 29. Mason Redman, who we now know is staying at Essendon, had 24, 8 marks and gained 549 meters. Nick Hyde with 23 and 8 marks and playing a lot more freely this year. Sam Durham matched his jumper number with 22 disposals. Zach Merritt just 21. Again, tagged pretty well by Curtis Taylor in the first half. Nine tackles, though, important in terms of pressure in the forward half. Archie Perkins with a goal from 20 disposals at seven marks. I think he's been one of their greater value players this year and is getting a lot more respect for the work that he does. Will never be one of their top players, but a really strong depth piece. Jaden Laverty with 11 intercepts as well. You know, it was Brandon Zerk Thatcher these past couple weeks that was getting more intercepts as he went back into form. He had Laverty to support him there with a freer halfback role. Essendon plus 33 on marks. Plus 14 on bounces tells you how much more open space they had to work with. Some of that in the second half, again, did come from starting out with the extra man in defense. Harry Sheasel, 32 disposals to lead North Melbourne. I think he's 19 disposals away from breaking the first-year player record. Luke Davies, Uniac, a goal, 28 disposals, 720 meters. He's just been, he's just been really strong all year. Jack Zebel, 27 disposals, 10 intercepts, 546 meters. Bailey Scott. 26 disposal, 623 meters. And Jai Simkin cooled off some from his earlier season form, but still pretty good. A goal and a behind off 22 disposals. Sydney, 18 6, 114, defeating Gold Coast, 13 12, 90. In the last two weeks, the Swans have now kicked 33 12, and they haven't kicked more behinds than goals since beating the Bulldogs in round 18 when they kicked 11-12. Before that, the last time they had more behinds and goals was round 16 when they kicked a mighty 6-18. Ooh, that was a fun one. That was the draw. Um, The Swans are the eight. Yeah, they're back in this shit. I mean, they were in it. They were kind of in the back of the in-it teams, but now they're right there in the thick of it. Unfortunately, the Suns' defense did not make the trip down to Sydney. As well as Golden Coast's defense has played for a lot of this season... As much as they've impressed, especially in that game against the Lions, this was not that. Charlie Ballard's worst game of the year is the start of things. Yeah, I thought Rory Atkins was shaky at times. I, I will say, though, this is sort of the type of game that you would have expected from the Suns at the start of the year. Maybe not quite the level of midfield play you would have hoped. Good forward play, struggling defensively. But yeah, Ballard really struggled in this one. Suns actually led 58-56 at half. Uh, Malcolm Roses was 
awesome in the first half. He's both a really good field kick and a really good kick for goal. I mean, this is a guy that can easily be racking up 20-plus assists in the coming season so long as he has consistent playing time. I really enjoy watching this kid. And it's unfortunate that that went to waste, but a six-goal to two-third quarter put things away, and then that lead ballooned even farther early in the fourth. It was late in the third where the Swans really started to take it to him, but you could see the warning signs coming. Uh, Isaac Heaney had a great first half. He was kind of taking big marks around the half-forward position, ended up finishing the game with two goals, 17 disposals, and 11 contested possessions. Other than that, there was a lot of the usual suspects for the Swans who were just you know, there was just a clear gap in talent, and for the Suns to beat you, they're A, going to need the defense to play well. B, if the defense doesn't play well, they're going to really need to outclass you in the midfield, and they didn't. Like, I did really like how Matt Rowell played. 25 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 11 score involvements, 9 clearances. I would do a lot of unsavory things to have him in hoops. I like to say, you know, when I see, like, a really good high school player, it's like I would commit a lot of recruiting violations. I don't know what the equivalent here would be, but just to have a guy that's always putting himself on the ground, always getting down and dirty, I I really like this game. Imagine Raul and Atkins of the same team. Yeah. Because on, on an ideal team, Atkins is like your third or fourth best midfielder, not your best. You were mentioning that it was Ballard's worst game. He was largely ineffective. You know why that was? One, Will Hayward was the reason. The week after he took a lot of the intercept game away from Sam Taylor, he did that again against Ballard and kicked four goals straight from 16 disposals, including 11 contested. And for Hayward to be able to do that when he's not, you know, a particularly big player at all, he's just 6-1, or I guess for most people to understand, most sadly. communists, sadly, yes, 186 centimeters. For someone of that size to be able to take away the intercept game from some of the premier intercept marks in the league is really impressive. And Hayward's now done it two weeks in a row, so... That's something for the Swans' future opponents to watch out for. The Crows could get really exposed by that in the back, especially with them being thinner in defense this coming round. Huge game for both the Swans and Crows playing Saturday night at the Adelaide Oval in round 23. Yeah, it's not quite an elimination game for the Swans now, which is crazy. We thought a few weeks ago they were already in an elimination game against Essendon. It's definitely an elimination game for the Crows, the Swans really just one win should do it because in just about every scenario, 50 is enough. I guess, you know, there's a chance they'd be squeezed out on percentage if Geelong also get 50. We know the Crows, by the way, obviously their max is 48. If anyone gets in at 48, it would be them because their percentage is really good. I don't think we're going to have too much with percentage that comes down to, you know, like, one goal at the very end deciding everything, kind of like with the Bulldogs and Blues last year. I think that's quite unlikely right now. Or actually, the the closest ever one was measured on another one of the, the broadcasts this week. It was uh, back in 2017 when the Eagles got in over the Demons. I think it was something like 0.48% Hamish McLaughlin was saying. He uh, traumatized Nathan Jones with that one, I think, during the Tiger Saints broadcast. Anyway, Swans seem to, unsurprisingly, because we've said this for a while, they have their forward hierarchy figured out, even without Buddy. Basically, Hayden McLean, Joe Lamardi, who got subbed off in kind of a victory cigar sub, I guess. Yeah. When he got subbed out, it was already a 25-point game, and the Swans ended up growing it out to 37 with four minutes left. Logan McDonald also had a pretty nice game, kind of setting those guys up, but McLean kind of working as like a Jeremy Finlayson type forward who also does rock stuff. Been pretty good. 
I guess I guess from here for the Suns, you know, their last couple games taking on Carlson at home and then finishing up down in Tasmania against North. I'd just like to see a good finish to the season defensively for the Suns, and I'd like to see Bailey Humphrey have a good game because he's been very, very quiet lately. All right, stat leaders for the Swans, Chad Warner, one of his better games in a minute, uh, two goals, 28 disposals, 15 contested possessions and seven clearances. Nick Blakey, 24 disposals, 12 intercepts, eight marks, seven of which were intercept marks. Tom Papley, a goal in a behind, 24 disposals, 10 score involvements. How do you rate his celebration? Standard Tom Papley. Errol Golden, 19 disposals, 10 contested possessions, 8 tackles. James Robottom got some time a little further forward, kind of as like a, not quite a half forward, kind of between midfield and half forward, but he still had 8 tackles to go with his goal and 18 disposals. Swans had 12 more free kicks, which made sense. Yeah, they were they were largely the aggressors. They were the team in charge of this game. Hitouts did go to the Suns 54-29. to That's no surprise. And fitting with one team playing much better defense than the other, the Swans, 85 tackles to Gold Coast 66. But yeah, that, that forward line of Amarty, Hayward, and McLean, I think there's some surreal staying power to it. Amarty, McDonald, McLean, Hayward kind of in the mid-size role there. Heaney as well, Pavley the smaller target. You've got a little bit of a hierarchy that is sometimes necessary with the fours, but the rest of that is just, you know, whichever one's whichever one's open, they tend to be pretty reliable set shots. I know Heaney was shaky at times earlier, earlier this year, but it's just a very good-looking unit as a whole. So they don't have any post-buddy worries there. Stat leaders for the Suns, other than Matt Rowell, Brandon Ellis with a goal for 23 disposal and eight marks. Sam, not stupid, but sexy Flanders with a goal from 23. Noah Anderson, a goal from 22. Rory Atkins had 22, but didn't think it was one of his better defensive performances, as we said. Tuke Miller with a goal from 22 disposals. This was his return after the uh, nutty suspension he got from Q-Clash. David Swallow, who has played the most games out of any active player that hasn't made finals with 16 disposals and 7 tackles. Jared Witts with 47 hitouts, 17 disposals, and 8 clearances. I love Rooks work. Able to get some of their own clearances like Wits and Oscar McInerney, but the Suns still need to work out some of the kind of setup on Ruck contests in their defensive 50. That was something that was very apparent last week. Wasn't as much of an issue that this week, but just something on which they can continue to work. Brisbane Lions 15-9-99, defeating the Adelaide Crows 13-15-93. Not the premier football entertainment in Southeast Queensland on Saturday night, but Damn entertaining all the same. The Crows with another close loss to a top four team. And when they dominated four time early in the fourth quarter, they weren't able to convert in front of goal again. They kicked two goals, five in the fourth. Here's the thing, though. Before that happened, this has just been a pretty good back and forth game. And then the Lions took a three goal edge in the third quarter. Crows cut it back down to five. Lions got it back out to 16. And then, yeah, it kind of turned into your typical... 2023 Crows loss. I think the consensus all around the footy world is this is clearly one of the top eight teams and they just haven't closed out games that they've needed to. They're three and four against the current top four with an They beat the power by 31 and 47. They beat the Lions in Adelaide by 17, but they got four losses to the top four by an average of three points. And this is a younger group that will learn how to closeout games, but it's frustrating that they weren't able to do it here, especially when the Lions retreated into a defensive shell far too early in the fourth and really played 
not to lose. This has been an issue with the Lions at times before, and we saw it again in this game, and I think it's one of the reasons that they have a propensity to lose games like this. It makes it all the more funny how they won the final last year against the Tigers when this is a team that doesn't know how to close a game out. Like, hindsight there was really funny. The Lions had got the better of contest from the middle of the first quarter, but I wasn't really impressed by a lot of what they were doing in the first half. It seemed like a pretty ordinary effort from them, and they trailed by a point at halftime, and it was Lincoln McCarthy who sparked them in the third with some big contest wins, and as he got more involved and as he managed to exert some more pressure, the team pressure rose with him. The other area that I expected to be more of a focus when people were looking back on this game was Charlie Cameron just outdoing Max Michelani in that matchup. Cameron kicked three goals, too, had a couple misses that were quite timely for the Crows to get some better chances going from defense, but obviously they couldn't convert on those either. Michelani has had a brilliant first season, has a rising star nomination, but this felt like his most welcome to the AFL game yet. I think this has happened to a lot of young defenders against Charlie Cameron, not Brady Hoff. The other area where the game turned for the Lions in the second half, but also throughout, was on clearance success, particularly from Hugh McCloggage managing to get outside from his better work. McCloggage, with two goals straight from 28 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 10 score involvements, and 8 clearances, clearly the best on ground. Yeah, it's funny, teams have actually done a pretty good job quieting Lockie Neal in recent weeks, and McCloggage is a guy who needs to step up in those situations, and he did so. You know, this seemed like a game to me... If you had said who deserved to win, like you could allot 100 deserved to win points. Through about three quarters, I would have given about 60 of those to the Lions, and then that definitely turned in the fourth. Whereas usually for the Crows, that dominant and accurate quarter has been earlier in the game, but it's just, despite happening in kind of a different sequence than usual, it, it felt very, very familiar. The Lions led by 22 with just over 13 minutes left after Eric Hipwood scored and then did not score again. It was This is when kind of they retreated defensively. I wonder if they were trying to test themselves a bit, prepare themselves for lower scoring games come September. That was the talk on some of the broadcast. I wasn't a huge fan of it. I thought they needed another goal or two, managed to survive off of the Crows' inaccuracy and getting enough contest wins to not be exposed out the back. Another theme from this game, Thinking injuries were way worse than they actually were. Is the water at the Gabba laced with Penthrox or something? Yeah, um, we saw it twice. We thought we had, like, season-ending ACL injuries. We thought Mitch Hinge, then we thought Jack Gunston, and both of them came back in. I mean, we'll see what the injury reports look like in the coming days. But Gunston, it's an MCL, and he may be done for the season. He was subbed out for Jasper Fletcher. Hinge managed to come back in, though. And the new captain of Chaos has had a lot of injury issues in the past, especially with his knees going back to his time with the Brisbane Lions, where he only was able to manage a few games. Did you know Ben Keyes used to play for the Lions? A lot of crossover in this game, actually, with Hinge, Keyes, Charlie Cameron, Jack Gunston. I'm probably still missing a couple. For all the injuries the Crows have withstood, and unfortunately some of those defensive injuries are going to carry over into next year, like, you gotta be impressed with how they've been able to stay afloat, and it's not like you can blame most of their losses on, like, dumb coaching stuff, even in the frustrating close games. This seems to be a problem for the next few years. I think that's become pretty well established. I think they've earned a lot of respect. It's just gotta be really frustrating to know that they could be securely in the eighth right now if they could just finish a couple of these games or kick straight when they're kicking your ass. 
We'll probably talk about this in one other game from this round, but this was a, one of the games where teams took the 2021 Chris Scott approach of just like burn all your subs and hope for the best. The Crows were out of interchanges in the final two minutes. The Lions had one left. I was honestly, I'll admit it. I was hoping for another sickos moment so that North wouldn't be alone. Oh, I totally was too. Like, I'm, I'm glad the Lions won because it helps the Cats. But yeah, something stupid like that would have been funny. I already gave McClug just stats. Again, best line on ground. Maybe you have a case for a crow like Matt Crouch to get the three votes, but I would say McCluggage, considering he was getting some of the touches and contest wins that Neil didn't get with Ben Keys being on him a bit. Neil with 23 disposals. Zach Bailey, whose goal song we cannot stand. Hey, baby, is overrated. Sorry, Australia. Also, the gif of him doing the gritty it gives like the most how do you do fellow kids energy of anything i've ever seen kai loman does the gritty better than zach bailey we saw that in the vfl this past week andrew gaze still is better <laughs> but bailey kicked two straight from 18 their most dynamic midfielder when he's at his best the lines tend to be at their best i'm glad that they've locked him up for the long term darcy wilmot with a goal from 17 disposals and 507 meters he is a tom papley level goal celebrator we saw that on his debut last year in the qualifying final, and he's only scored six goals in his career thus far in 25 games, but he lets you know when he scored them. Speaking of infrequent goal scorers, um, Harris Andrews kicked one from 52 meters late in the first quarter, his first goal since round four 2021 against the Bulldogs, and his second since the second Hugh clash of 2018. He was his normal defensive self as well with 16 disposals, 11 intercepts, 8 contested possessions, and 7 marks. You did have Jack Payne going up on Taylor Walker. A couple different matchups for, for Darcy Fogarty, but Andrews was able to play loosely, which was important. I do want one Crow in particular, Luke Dan Curvis on his first career bounce, one more than Toby. No relation. It's more fun to pretend they are, really. Ryan Lester continues to be an important kick out of the back, 16 disposals and 8 marks. Crows were plus 47 on handballs and plus 17 on hitouts. Productive day in the rough for Riley O'Brien. They were also plus 9 in clearances and plus 22 in tackles, including plus 8 inside 50, but they didn't make their forward time count nearly enough. Rory Laird, 2 behinds, 34 disposals, 8 tackles, rewarded me for making him my captain this week. It was a very Rory Laird game for Rory Laird. Matt Crouch, 33 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 9 clearances. Wayne Miller, 28 disposals, 8 marks, 532 meters. I am glad that I have him on bugger jumping. He gave me 114. And in a week where Darcy Moore gave me 12 and Little was subbed out after 22, it helped. Jordan Dawson, 24 disposals, 612 meters. Mitch Hinge, a behind, 22 disposals, 9 intercepts. Harry Schoenberg, a goal in 21 disposals. Jake Saligo, a behind in 20. Ben Keyes limited to 19, but racked up two goals, a behind in 10 score involvements. Not the best set shot kicking day for Taylor Walker at the worst possible time. Two goals, three behinds, 19 disposals. Shane McAdam kicked 4-1, though, and Mark Keane, even though he hasn't been as sharp lately as we saw in his first couple outings, still got nine intercepts. What the Crows have done with a... Shredding defense is actually pretty impressive. Will credit Taylor Walker. His first goal was his 600th for his career. He has 65 now for the season, which is a career high for him. And don't think McAdam had kicked four before as well. 
I love this forward group for the Crows. And I mean, we'll see how long Walker has. He'll finally get the All-Australian nod this year. I mean, he has to, but he's far from the only target there. And I'm glad McAdam is back into form. Carlton 9660 defeated Melbourne 8856. Barring a really hilarious combination of events, the Blues are finals bound because they're up to 50 points. First time since 2013, first time actually really being in the eight based on points since 2011 because they were gifted that appearance in 2013 thanks to the Essendon drug scandal. Admittedly, this was not much to watch in the first half, in the first half of well, especially the well, no, the second quarter was bad. All right, so let me let me take you through this. I had said, and this was a, my effort to shamelessly plug us, if you missed the first quarter because you were watching the Matildas, we'll summarize it for you. It was 9-6. to six. Carlson had 24 inside 50s to Melbourne's four and probably should have put the game away, but couldn't deliver to those last options inside 50. And when they did, both Charlie Curnow and George Hewitt missed set shots. They really kicked their asses, and then things even up in a very boring second quarter. Six total goals in the first half, six total goals in the third quarter. Pace really picked up. Game got really fun. Carlton got out to an 18-point lead with three goals in the first four and a half minutes of the fourth quarter. Going by clock time, we usually go by clock time rather than actual time, in case you were wondering. Then the Ds get back into it because Kazi Pickett snapped out of the crowd. Sparks the whole team, of course. Joel Smith gets one because fourth quarter Joel Smith has totally been the thing, and it's pretty cool. They had a bunch of chances, and then the umpiring got involved. Um, there's a lot of talk about a review that came with 41 seconds left in the game, and I'm going to just touch on that briefly. I didn't mind the soft call to behind for Caleb Marchbank touching Petraka's kick. I thought coming down, it touched his right forearm. I don't think it was touched. I think if there was no on-field call to go off of, would have been a goal. I don't think that was anywhere near the most egregious call. That side angle where you could tell it didn't touch his hand at all is pretty bad. It could have totally touched his elbow or his knee. So that call doesn't bother me anywhere near as much as, let's see, um, the really bad, apparently it was a high tackle that got Patty Dow out of his own end with about nine minutes left. Then you had Van Royen getting tripped. And I think, I want to say it was gone getting tackled without the ball in like a five-second span. I know Van Royen was involved in one of those two things. It, 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 it was bad. It was not a well-umpired weekend of footy. No, but this game was especially bad, and it could have been enough to decide the game. In fact, after the controversial behind call, which I would say 60 to 70% chance it was not touched, but not out of the question. Anyway... Oh, yeah, I remember this. Max Gone got yeah, dragged Even down. Even trying to launch back into the 50, and Max Gone gets dragged down. But as long as you don't literally put someone on stretcher, you can do anything inside the final minute of a close game and get away with it. It's like The Purge, which, by the way, very interesting concept for a movie. One of the few movies I've actually watched. Uh, I gave the movie itself like a B. It was like, cool concept, not super well done, but it's interesting. You know, it's like, what would you do? If you had 24 hours, you know, would you just like, or was it even, tw it might have been 12. No, I think whatever it was, it's like, do you hunker down and just try to take care of yourself? Do you try to protect other people? Do you go out and try to, try to do some things? You know, do you go and like, well, apparently footy players would just drag everybody down. I don't know. Yeah, it's like with some, because there are some like overpriced, but very good foods that like, if I could just go and take them, would be tempted. Yeah, that's what we're thinking about during the purge. 
Yeah, I mean, like that $24 steak sandwich or whatever it cost at the Mets game. Maybe it was 20 I don't know. Either way, I would just, like, start hoarding those. The Pat LaFarita steak sandwiches, those are really chilly. You need to sort out your priorities. This is... No! Eat this sandwich and you'll understand it's a priority. Anyway, yeah, umpiring was really bad. Carlton won 60-56. to 56. They had lost eight straight to the Demons. It would have been really funny if they had blown it like they had blown last year's game. Probably still going to be finals bound regardless if they just go up to Gold Coast and win this coming week. But meanwhile, Melbourne's staring down potentially at a road week one final, which is the big result out of this. They're currently in fourth, obviously. Collingwood playing Brisbane this coming Friday can open things up for them. But Melbourne now have to get a game back against the Lions and the Power. They've got Hawthorne this coming round, so should be able to do that. I mean, should, and then go to the SCG round 24. That is the middle Sunday game. That's the national TV game round 24. It's not going to be easy for them. The difference between being top two and being third and fourth is staggering because one of three things happens if you're third or fourth. You're going to Port, you're going to Brisbane, or you're facing Collingwood. Now, they can beat Collingwood. We've seen Oh, absolutely. They can beat any of these teams anywhere. Melbourne's good enough to do it. It's just you'd like your chances better facing the Lions or Power at the G. As for actual takeaways from this game besides umpiring, like if you put this game on the deserve to win a meter or winometer or however you want to pronounce it, I it would still lean towards Carlton. Like, it's crazy as they actually only won inside 50s by five for the match. Uh 53 to 48, considering it was 24 to 4 in the first quarter. But they could have won this game then when everyone else was watching the Matildas. Uh, speaking of, so I want to talk about this for a minute. I don't care much about the Women's World Cup. Like, if you asked me if I'd rather find five cents on the ground or decide who won, I would probably take the five cents rather than have that power. Phone call for a bag of nickels. Ah! But I will say, and this is very rare for me. It is cool seeing Australians so happy about this. Like, normally, I don't like seeing other people happy about a team. I want people to, like, have to experience misery as a fan. But Australians are awesome. And seeing not just, like, the crowd shots from around Australia, you know, the fans sticking around at the SCG, the fans on the concourse at the G, getting there early for the Western Derby. And you already had like 40-something thousand in the seats to watch the ending of that a few minutes before the bounce. The videos of GWS and the Bulldogs celebrating the Crows after the, even though they had lost, getting into it. Like, this is so cool. My favorite part of it, Ethan Meldrum calling two codes of football at the same time. This is, I think, for the, the Triple M broadcast. Is It was near the end of quarter time, and he was, you know, relaying the information on the penalties. He, the French player in the 10th round had just missed, you know, you may remember a few years ago, a moment, the end of an NFL regular season where Kevin Harlan famously said, I'm calling both games. A first round bye was on the line in two games. I think the Chiefs ended up getting the bye over the Chiefs, Chargers and Patriots, Dolphins. I yes. Think. Yes. I know that the Chiefs got the bye over the Patriots. That's OK. Two games of the same sport. Reasonable. Calling two different codes of football at the same time is something else. So Ethan Meldrum, well done. And I don't know how I didn't make any noise during the shootout. It ended at, I think, 3.02 a.m. our time. And I was just incredibly high-strung about the whole thing. I think Mackenzie Arnold and Courtney Vine probably don't have to buy drinks for the rest of their lives in Australia. I was, I was still very surprised to see Arnold, the keeper, get the chance to win it in round five. And she normally take penalties for Australia? I have no idea. Also, France tried to pull a red main. 
I, f- I find that incredibly funny that one, they tried it against Australia and two, it didn't work. We can go on about the silliness of penalty kicks, but I got to say the theater, the whole thing was really fun. Longest penalty shootout in World Cup history, men's or women. Also, it just felt like it took forever because there's a lot of time between kicks, whereas like and and also uh, like an NHL shootout, it's like, you know, you've got the goalies at opposite end. So it's just one skater goes, next skater goes. There's so much time and drama between these kicks. That's what that's what really adds to the whole the whole atmosphere. And one of the French kicks was taken again because Arnold came off her line early and she still saved it the second. Yeah, time. That, was, that was awesome. Anyway. But yeah, I really hope you beat England because it's really, really fun whenever the British lose a sport that they invented, especially if they lose it to a country that used to be theirs. And you have the whole ashes drama this year and everything like the British losing sports they invented is one of my absolute favorite things in the world. And it'll be really fun if it happened again here. But yeah, during all of that, Carlton should have put this game away. Uh, it was not Jacob Wiederen's best game, but I thought Caleb Marchbank played really well to make up for it. Brody Kemp's really sharp. Uh, George Hewitt should have never been in a sub role because he's really good. They've got him playing his absolute best right now. 33 disposals, 23 contested possessions, eight clearances and kicked behind. With Sam Walsh out, Hewitt has been trusted with a lot more of the inside work, keeping Adam Chera, not Wolf. I said it before you, more on the outside. So it's been Cripps and Hewitt together at a lot of those stoppages, and that has worked really, really well for him. I'd say the two best pieces for the Blues in the past you know, month and a half while they've been on this run have been Hewitt in the midfield and forward half, and otherwise Nick Newman, who also had 33 disposals, 11 intercepts, 9 marks, and 521 meters. I have been very, very right about Nick Newman this year, and I think he might be the best of our 36 sleeper picks. For newer listeners, way back during the home and away previews, our, our three-part thing there, we each came up with like with a sleeper pick, just like a player that not enough people are talking about going into the season for each club, and I nailed it with Newman. Hello, Newman. Patrick Cripps isn't necessarily playing at Brownlow form, but he's been way, way better these last few weeks, was very involved on the ground, handballing well, and that made a big difference as well. Uh, the one concern out of this game, Sam Doherty getting subbed out. Looks like it was a corked calf. Not sure if that's going to have any carryover, but he's been playing really solid brand of football all season. It's kind of one of the more aggressive, ball-moving, kind of offensive-minded defenders. And Newman's intercepting ability has allowed him to venture more forward as well. Doherty kicked a goal to behind from 22, and Cripps a goal from 29 disposals and 9 tackles. Again, having him and Hewitt together at stoppages has worked wonders and when they get Sam Walsh back I think that could free Walsh up to maybe play a little bit off the stoppages use his speed to be kind of that next guy out after the clearance I just want to mention as well Lockie Fogarty was a huge spark at the start of the fourth quarter that really set up that run for those three consecutive goals I think Matthew always at kind of a full forward position has been a pretty electrifying piece always has had to have that more of a full forward assignment since Jack Silvani went down and that has worked really, really well. And Fogarty, you know, the thing that we remember last week was, no, I'm staying on the Oval. I'm better than Ed Kerno. Yes, you are, Lockie. Yes, you are. On Melbourne's side, um, I thought Ed Langdon was pretty good, just running along the wing. He ended up with a goal and 22 disposals. I didn't realize Lockie Hunter had 27 disposals. It was, I didn't notice a ton of him. Maybe it was because he wasn't wearing the long sleeves. That also might be why they lost. Gotta bring back the long sleeves. 
It's like how Richmond have suffered when when, when you've got Jack Revolt in the three-quarter sleeves now. Other than that, Jack Martin's still been really consistent, and Tom DeCoing battled with Max Gone pretty nicely. I mean, you're not going to beat Max Gone unless you're maybe Tim English, but DeConing did enough against him to make sure he didn't take over. Yeah, it was largely, I guess, DeConing against Gone and Mark Pitnett over Brody Grundy. What, what do you think about Grundy's place in the team? You know, once Tom McDonald is AFL ready, he returned through the reserves this week. Do you think McDonald will come in? as that other swingman and maybe allow Joel Smith to be the sub again. How do you see Grundy's role going into finals? I don't know. I don't know if he stays in when you get a healthy Bailey Fritsch or something. That's the other thing. Fritsch will be back within the next couple of weeks, we believe. And between him and McDonald, I think that may squeeze them out. Because at this point, you can't take out Jake Melchin, who initially came in for Fritsch. I like both him and Kate Chandler, by the way. But um, I think with Grundy, and we had, we had mentioned this when we had done our round 22 preview, we had talked about the possibility of, you know, you put him in there, kind of just reduce some of the wear and tear on Gone, keep him fresh. So I don't know if Grundy's going to be in that finals lineup. If you want to reduce some of the wear on him, fine to leave him in this coming week as well, especially because Hawthorne only go with one ruck. You could really harass Ned Reeves there going between Grundy and Gone and would probably largely be Grundy. I'd say like, Three quarters of the time. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right, other notable stats for Carlton. Blake Akers was a little shaky early on and then really found himself. A goal, 25 disposals, 493 meters. Adam Saad, Woof. 25 disposals. Patty Dow, 20 disposals, 7 tackles. I think as this team gets healthier, it'll be hard to put him back in the sub role. I think he had to keep him in there full time. Uh, you know, maybe Lockley Fogarty or Oliver Hollins is the one you drop? I don't know. I think Dow has kind of played a, a little bit of that role that... I would expect Sam Walsh to be in going forward as well. So if you had to move down to the sub, then I would understand why with Walsh coming back. I think Fogarty is a decent pick there as long as it's as long as it's not and Kerno. And no, I think Hollins needs to be in full game. You can have him linking up with Akers going all the way, or could have him playing opposite him as well. There's so much speed that this Blues team can have out, out the back and Hollins is a pretty effective disposer of the footy, and Matt Cottrell playing in defense has worked really well for them as well. We're both big Matt Cottrell enjoyers. Brody Kemp, 19 disposals, 10 intercepts, 8 marks. Lockie Fogarty, 18 disposals, 7 tackles. Um, other stats of note, so how do you have 24 inside 50s in the first quarter and not capitalize on it with more than 9 points? Well, for the game, Carlton was only at 28.3% efficiency inside 50. Melbourne, not great, 39.6. Hitouts went to the Ds, 59 to 29. Marks to Carlton, 79 to 60. And tackles inside 50 to the Blues, 21 to 8. Agus Brayshaw and Jack Vidi each had 31 disposals for the Demons. Brayshaw with 16 contested possessions and 9 tackles. Vidi with 17 contested and 11. As Clayton Oliver comes back in, you may see Brayshaw be moved out a bit toward kind of a halfback flank. It'll depend on Oliver's match fitness, but Viney has continued to be very strong there in the contest. Oliver, by the way, with 27 disposals, 14 contested, 13 tackles, and 10 clearances, so not much rush from him there. Both Christians in the Melbourne lineup with 24 disposals, Salem and Petraka, the latter of whom kicked two goals too. Jake Lever with 12 intercepts, getting more of those intercept possessions and marks than Stephen May. Again, this is a premiership defense. We've so, we've seen that from Melbourne the past few years. When you only concede 60 points, you ought to be able to win, especially with a lot of that has so often scored 
triple digits as of like, you know, this is a, this is a Demons team that's played an exciting brand of footy in recent times, and they can get there. I see no way that they're going out in straight sets. It would be hilarious if it happened again, but I don't see it. That said, there are some good enough teams outside of the top four that, I mean, Blues, if they have to run into the Blues again, I mean, I, I would love for this to be another finals matchup, have this as a semifinal. It would require Melbourne losing, though. I mean, if they have to make a road trip, then, then watch out. Don't forget, we're on Twitter, at American Spuddy. Grian Harambe sitting on my bed. He's on Instagram at cat named Grian. I actually posted something of him on there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. We'll be more active on YouTube in the offseason as well, producing just, well, I'll be the one producing more content, probably just underrated things I noticed from the season. And, you know, that might be a, a good place in the future for us to do, like, brief preview things as well, or, like, the last time these teams met as shorts. That's an idea that I had. Western Derby 57 happened. The Eagles kicked the first two goals. They then conceded 20 of the next 21. West Coast 4-9-33, defeated by, well, we could do this again, can't we? Lockie Schultz 5-3-33. It's a draw. Yeah, it, it's a draw, actually. This has happened before, I think. It has. It's happened yeah, it, times. It was 3-0-2014, 134. If you couldn't guess how this was going to happen... The Eagles profited off turnover early on like they did against Essendon, but then the Doggers, as Essendon also did, increased forward pressure from the early stages. The Eagles had no control of the ball really in any of the second quarter, and the Doggers dominated from stoppages. They were plus 13 on clearances, plus 9 from the center. They scored 6 goals in the second quarter, 7 in the third. Meanwhile, the Eagles scored 4 points across those terms. And, uh... Fuck Oscar Allen. He got a goal, but his shoulder's been a concern all year. He didn't play the last bit. And, I mean, honestly, do you shut him down for the season at this point? Hope that he can come in right away to start next year, hopefully as captain? I don't know. This was the Dockers' largest Western Derby win at 101 points. The Eagles still have the record, by the way, for the largest margin in Western Derby. Back in round 11 of 2000, they won by 117. I was going to say some nice things about the Eagles after, so I've caught up on some games from the last few weeks that I haven't had a chance to watch. Watch the Essendon game, watch the North game. You know, I was going to say nice things about Jamie Cripps, about Elijah Hewitt, and but, then... I mean, Hewitt still competed really well. Cripps didn't get nearly as much of the ball, but yeah, you have no reason to say those nice things now. I think the Dockers are a really good matchup for them, especially with a thin midfield with Luke Shuey among the outs. I just thought that they were going to be able to compete where I thought Jermaine Jones being in would help contain things a bit. But Lockie Schultz is a very underrated player and a tough guy to match up against in general. And he really flexed his muscles in this game. So did Luke Jackson. One goal, one from 26 hitouts and 19 disposals. Bailey Williams has not been nearly as strong in terms of hitout work as of late. And so they were able to start a decent amount of stuff from rough contests all over the ground. I still think he's improved by a massive amount from the start of this season. And, you know, there's potential at that spot for the Eagles between the Williamses and Bailey and Jack and young Harry Barnett. I, I still think there's a future there. It's just if you're looking for positives for the Eagles, you won't find them really from this game outside of those first couple minutes. You know, the Eagles actually led this game 14-0. to zero, And then, as I said, I saw Frio get a goal. 
And then I looked up again and they had like three more. And it just it just kind of went from there. I got to say, though, every time you listen to Oscar Allen, you hear him talk about how much he cares about this club and how like you want to see this guy as their captain long term. I want to see like the next time they have finals team, he better be a part of it because I would give a lot of internal organs for him to lift the Premiership Cup as captain. The two worst teams right now each have a big-time goal-kicking tall forward that's really easy to get behind. Nick Larkey, you know, the emotions are more on display on the field, like you saw after each of his goals against Essendon, how empty he was. Allen, it's the off-field quotes. Anyway, those are both guys, like, if you're a fan of those clubs, you'd, you'd do a lot. The other weird thing about this game, well, it was kind of after the game. The Glendinning Allen medal was decided on a countback, with Lockie Schultz winning it by having more three-vote uh, nods compared to Luke Jackson. It's funny because I think in the lead-up to this game, there was also talk about how the medal one year... Yeah, yeah. Um, so I forget if it was uh, a tie or, or, or Ross Glendinning just straight-up overruled Ashley Sampy getting the medal, but Sampy was finally awarded a medal. And it's just surprising now that you have that on one side for the Eagles and here a tie and a count back for the Dockers. I'm wondering if... I'm wondering if in the future they may just decide, nah, just have two medals at the ready in case there's a tie. Then again, there's only one Norm Smith medal each year. Just the one really strange thing out of this game, other than, you know, the Eagles getting the first two goals, if you count that as strange. Andrew Brayshaw had 33 disposals. Caleb Sarong had 30. Jordan Clark, 28 disposals and 10 marks, and a nice video of him talking to a, to a young Eagles fan after the game. I think he gave him his boots or something. Hayden Young, 25 disposals, 8 tackles, 483 meters. Lockie Schultz, 5 goals, 3 behinds, 24 disposals. Sam Switkowski, from the bits of this game I watched, I was shocked that he didn't record any scoring shots himself because he had 11 score involvements, 22 disposals, but I like that he was able to keep things flowing. He is playing as strongly as he was at the start of the year aside from, you know, he's not the one kicking for goal as much and wasn't ever a huge goal kicker in the first place. I mean, helps that you've got Luke Jackson working into things more. Jaim is kicking strongly. Solid outing for James Aish with a goal and a behind off 21 disposals. It was a long goal that he kicked, too. I think it was from 50 or just outside. Uh, Matt Johnson, a goal a behind 21 disposals, nine marks, 564 meters. Jaim has kicked 4-3. It was as bad as it as the score suggested. Uh, Frio, 64 inside 50s to 35. They were also almost 15% more efficient inside 50. They had 13 more clearances. They had 12 more marks inside 50. However, unlike a lot of the games when they've gotten their asses handed to them, the Eagles did end up tackling more, 64 to 51. So, I mean, I wasn't thrilled with a lot of the pressure, especially in the second half when it appeared just kind of, they were devastated by the fact that it got that bad again. But I'm glad that they were a heavier tackling team and that pressure will serve them well once other parts of their game catch up to it. Tim Kelly led the Eagles with 26 disposals. He had 17 contested possessions and a goal. Liam Duggan with 25. Alex Witherden with 24, 8 intercepts and 583 meters. Elijah Hewitt with 20 disposals and 10 contested possessions. Definitely not the best Hewitt in this round. Jaden Hunter behind from 18 disposals, 7 marks and 541 meters. I want Hunt to be around for some finals runs, but he's not, you know that young. He's 28. Nice to have, you know, a player from another club's premiership era, even though he didn't play in the grand final himself. And his speed can really work well with the younger group coming off halfback in midfield if they actually manage to 
get possession. Oh yeah, one other weird thing about this game. We had like that weird post-game thing. We had a weird pre-game thing as well. The second exceedingly late change of the season. And this one was not because of injury. Brady Hoff took too much of his asthma inhaler and there was concern about doping violations. And so Jack Williams ended up coming in for Hoff, which was disappointing because, again, Brady Hoff. It was just a very funny, bizarre thing. At first, I was wondering if it's this late, if there's something with the doctor there, if he was on the sideline. I was wondering, did a positive COVID test come back all of a sudden? Nope. It was using too much of his ass button inhaler. Good on the Eagles for being on top of that, though, and like being aware that something was wrong instead of finding out after the fact. Not like it would have impacted the result. Hoff does good work on small forwards, but I don't think anyone would have been able to stop Lockie Schultz, who has only kicked 100 goals in his career, feels like he's kicked a lot more. Just kicks them at very opportune times, I guess. Author 9-13-67, defeating the Bulldogs 9-10-64. Huh. Well, all of a sudden, the uh, Bulldogs' final spot, not so safe, even if they take care of the four three points this week against the Eagles. To get to 50, they're going to, you know, they need six points. So that game at Geelong in round 24 looks like it's going to mean something one way or the other. It's make or break for at least one of those clubs. Maybe both. So good job scheduling that as the uh, Saturday nighter. Yeah, that's going up against Bunga's finale. Outside of a really crappy start to this game where they put themselves in a quick 20-point hole, Hawthorne was just clearly the better team. And it's funny because if you watch those first few minutes, it was like, all right, this isn't going to be close. They're just going to get it handed to them. On top of that, Chad Wingard injured. People think it might be his Achilles. I don't know. It could have been just his ankle. It's actually been confirmed to be his Achilles. It's a nine to 12 month recovery process. Yeah, I was hoping it was a bone thing rather than a ligament thing. No, so that sucked. I mean, he's 30 years old. He'd been in really good form these past few weeks. But you got to wonder at this point, is this curtains on Chad Wingard? I have a feeling he'll get back in some capacity. I don't think this is the very end for him. But uh, with Hawthorne moving in a younger direction, you never know. By the way, uh, just about 12,500 at Utah Stadium. Obviously, it, it holds, I think, just a little under 20, but a decent showing for a Sunday afternoon, and the fans were very vocal for Hawthorne. Good spirit and crowd. I think it just shows, you know, people have talked about attendance at some of the Tasmania games. It's just they want to see good football, and unfortunately, the games in Belrive or Hobart, depending on what you want to call it, haven't usually provided that because North's been North. really bad. But the big turning point in this game came when Tom Libertor got concussed, and you know what the Bulldogs did to adjust afterwards? Nothing! Yeah. So he was diving for a ball and kind of hit his head on Connor Nash's knee. He was bleeding from behind his ear and got subbed out, like, instantly. Dr. Gary Zimmerman and his amazing hair wasted no time in making the call, so in came Oscar Baker, and out went a crucial part of the Bulldogs game with no solution because this is a Luke Beveridge coach team. I was begging for Bailey Smith to be the one to get on ball to support Bonapelli there. Bass has played out of position so much this year. It was an opportunity for him to play where he belongs. You could have had Jack McCray move inside as well. His streak of 20 disposal games ended at 70. Not involved nearly enough. There were clear solutions there, and shocker, Luke Beveridge did not take them. Great job, Bulldogs, extending him through 2025. Again, the, the John Harbaugh comparisons in American football are very, very strong. Oh no, I see it much more as Mike Sosha. 
go with the baseball comp because it's like John Harbaugh makes adjustments. They might not be the right ones, but he makes adjustments. Uh, Luke Beveridge is still doing things the same way he's always done them. And it worked in 2016 and it works if you just out talent teams. But uh, when you when you lose Libertori, it's a lot harder to out talent teams. And the Hawthorne midfield stood up and I think like there was a Twitter poll that ran asking, you know, like, what's the best young midfield combo? And I know Rosie and Butters had the highest percentage of the votes there, but you can make a real case for Will Day and Jai Newcomb. I thought Newcomb was outstanding in this game. A goal off 40 disposals, 12 marks, 10 score involvements, 499 meters. Like, you want to teach someone who doesn't know footy that well about the importance of midfield play and center clearances and stuff, just watch Jai Newcomb for, like, 10 minutes. Highest ranking player in the round and just phenomenal. I mean, if you want to talk about younger midfield trios, I didn't realize that Connor Nash is actually already 25. I guess because he had spent time in Ireland. Yeah, was a rookie selection in 2016, made his debut in late 2018, which is why I thought he was a little younger. But that trio of Newcomb, Day, and Nash is so strong already. We've seen you know, we've seen Nash and Day both rise to the occasion at times this year. You put that up there with Rosie Butters and Horn Francis as the midfield trio of the next few years. Jai Newcomb, I'm not going to say like Errol Golden, like, oh, he's definitely going to win a Brownlow, but he'll be in the conversation with the trajectory he's on. Do you believe as I do that Golden will win one? I don't know if I'd lock him in, but I can see it. So Hawthorne went up by 21 with 14 minutes left, you know, 9 plus 10. 21. Then all of a sudden, in a three-minute stretch, the Bulldogs got a couple of huge goals. Great play by Oscar Baker, who ripped one from deep in the left pocket on the run. Then Tim English, Boblin secured a mark in front of Jacob Kaczynski, who I thought had a really good game. Who's Kaczynski? Kaczynski, Kaczynski. Either way, he was really fucking good. Rory Lobb had a couple chances to get it closer, but he missed left with one, then hit the right post with another three minutes later. Uh, James Warfel. Brian Myers' friend could have put it away with 2.22 left, but his snap missed left. He had a good game, though. This was his 100th, I believe. Bailey Williams, who hasn't been as good as he was in kind of the midsection of the season. Kind of like, I guess, right around if he divided the season into fifths, the second fifth was where he was at his best. But he marked behind the pack and kicked a goal with 1.54 left to cut it to two. Mitch Lewis missed left with 47 seconds left. Three-point game. Dogs gotta go the length of the field and score, and um, Tim English takes the kick out and looks like he's never done it before. The game against the Swans a few weeks ago when they had Ed Richards do like, that's the guy who should be doing these things? Like, Ed Richards or Liam Jones is an all right. Yeah, like, or you could even bring Caleb Daniel all the way back. Fuck it, I thought Daniel played pretty well in this game. Fuck it, how about another Caleb? Bolter's a pretty short kick. There are, uh, there are so many options there, and you would want English's height to be further up the ground wherever you're going. Yeah, you want him marking somewhere in the midfield or along the wing. It's like, how, what level of miscommunication or lack of preparation made this happen? It's like, do you not practice end-of-game scenarios? It just represents the underutilization of talent, the lack of attention to detail, and I forget which analyst was saying it after, but, you know, it was like, he wasn't going to pin it just on beverage, but it's like, if this team doesn't make finals when you've got, you know, Naughton and Jamara have combined to kick like 70 plus goals. Naughton didn't kick any in this game, meaning Charlie Curnow was the sole survivor there. But the point stands. You've got Bondon Valley and Brownlow for him. You've got Libertore, other than three quarters in this game. 
and next week. You've got Jack McRae. You've got one of the best tall defenders in Liam Jones. You've got Ed Richards. You've got Caleb Daniel. Like, this should not be hard. And again, a much better year out of Bailey Williams as well. Smart utilization of Daniel. And this is what you get. This is a team that, based on their list, should be fighting for the minor premiership every year. And yet, under Luke Beveridge, they have yet to make top four. They won't again. It would be really funny if the Eagles beat them this week. If they didn't have Libertory against, like, any other team. And I say any other, including North, because North has some good midfielders. Things would be really interesting. It's a free two or three votes for Bontempelli as well, which will strongly help his Brownlow case. Is there still a world in which Nick Dacos has enough votes already? I mean, it's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's possible. Just It, it could be like a Nat 5 situation where he does. But no, the Bulldogs will not lose to the Eagles. No, which is, which is a damn shame. It's good for the round 24 drama. The big thing that happened after that really awkward English kickout was that Carl Amon got Bailey Williams holding the ball and the Hawks were able to mark uncontested from there. Great reaction on the siren. And uh, all the talk about Hawthorne, you know, tanking as they were going younger. No. Sam Mitchell, Andy Gowers, everybody, they knew what they were doing. They've got two rounds to play. They've only got one fewer win than last year. So fuck off, Damian Barrett, among others. Look, if the Hawks had, you know, kind of like tried to build up from last year's core, is there an outside chance they'd still be fighting for a spot in the eight? Maybe. But this is maximizing their chance of winning flags. It was not about tanking. It was about, we have a better chance if we really go all in for two to three years down the road than we do now. So my question is, can the 2024 Hawks play finals? I think it, without a doubt, the 2025 Hawks can. Can 2024? That's the question. There are many worlds in which it's possible. I mean, so much of it will depend on health, but the fact that the side is playing this well together this young and has gotten wins over opponents like the Bulldogs, the Brisbane Lions, Collingwood is super encouraging. They've bought into Sam Mitchell's system and they're still going to get some higher end draft picks this year as well in a deep class. So they'll get even more help on the way. There is such a big gap between 16th and the bottom two. I mean, the Hawthorne might be the best third-to-last team we've ever seen, or anybody's ever seen. Yeah, the window we're using is four years, much smaller. But yeah, the only reason that I wouldn't say, oh yeah, the 2024 Hawks are a real chance for finals is I see 15 other teams that they'd be competing with. Like, it's a deep class of good teams right now, but they're squarely in that. Carl Amon, back in the lineup, on a mission, a goal, 32 disposals, 13 marks, 704 meters gained. Connor Nash, 26 disposals, 13 contested possessions and 8 clearances. James Warple, a goal, a behind, 25 disposals, 7 clearances. It was his 100th game, and it was Jai Newcomb's 50th, by the way. I, I would never say, you know, cheer off a guy after 50, but after what Jai Newcomb did, I wouldn't have necessarily been opposed to it. Will Day, a goal, and a behind from 24 disposals. Dylan Moore had the exact same line. Moore has gotten himself much more involved the last few weeks after being really quiet the first half of the season. He's stepped it up. Blake Hardwick, 22 disposals and 11 marks. You could tell the Bulldogs did, from the outset, want to limit James Sisley, and I think they largely did, and he still ended up with 22 disposals and 9 intercepts, but, like, that level of their game plan is fine. I don't question the Bulldogs' ability to make a game plan from the start of a game. I question their ability to adjust in the middle of one. Connor McDonald, 21 disposals, kicked two behinds, 552 meters gained. Harry Morrison and Josh Ward, 
also each had 21 disposals. Morrison came back in last week and was really on a mission then, kicking two goals. I think he solidified his spot for the next little bit, and good to see Ward staying in form. Rising star nominee last year, didn't get as much of the attention this year, but just another good young piece that I'm really happy about. Jacob Kaczynski, who I thought was really interesting, like a half-forward role. I thought he was really good. He kicked 1-2 off 16 disposals. He had 10 contested possessions and 8 marks. You know, it's funny, we had thought Ned Reeves should be playing as kind of a tall forward with Lloyd Meek in there because we didn't think he had the stamina to go for a full game at Ruck, but uh, he did this time. He had 43 hitouts, 10 disposals, 7 clearances, kicked to behind, and held his own against Tim English. Altor controlled the ball a lot more, game, or at least got a lot more passes off. From the time they went down 20 zeros, it was really all that. They were plus 121 in disposals for this game and were able to utilize shorter options well with the speed they have. They also were the more efficient team disposing of the ball by 7.5% overall and by nearly 8% inside 50. They were plus 8 from stoppage clearance, which is really impressive for anyone to be able to accomplish against the Bulldogs, but if there's any group that can do it, it's Nukem, Day, and Nash. Hawthorne plus 41 in marks. Bulldogs plus 17 in tackles, which makes sense considering they margin against them in disposals. Marcus Baldapelli and Ed Richards each had 23 disposals to lead the Bulldogs, but your leading disposals getters are only on 23, and it's those guys. That's a sign that you were outplayed and outplanned. Baldapelli with 8 tackles, 7 clearances, and 686 meters gained. Richards with 11 intercepts. Adam Trelore with 19 disposals and 11 contested possessions. And Bailey Williams, 17 and 9 marks. He's another candidate of someone else who could have gone more in the middle. I mean, I see him as playing a bit more off stoppages like Trelore. But there were so many possibilities and Luke Beveridge chose to sit on his hands. I love that the Hawks won a game that came down to the wire like this because this was one of the only knocks on them that I have had. I really believe that Sam Mitchell is one of the best coaches out there and... When it's all said and done, he could have like a Damian Hardwick-type legacy. Four flags as a player, could you see him getting four as a coach? I don't know about that many, but I think he's going to be regarded as one of the best coaches in this thing for a long, long time. And even, you know, you can look at 2018 at when he was an assistant of the Eagles and the kind of impact that he had there. Played there for his final year, that transitioned into a coaching role for 2018, and uh, yeah, that worked. In hindsight, how much did the Eagles' assistants really carry Adam Simpson through that premiership run between Sam Mitchell and Jamie Graham, who I would love to see come back as head coach? St. Kilda, 14-9-93, defeated Richmond 8-9-57 in Maddie's match. This did not go the way I thought it would, just in terms of I expected this to be a closer contest to begin with, but the Saints kicked very accurately and punished the Tigers with speed. They've recently remembered that, oh wait, we're fast as fuck, and they used that to their advantage early and often. Their early lead came from a lot of rebound work, and Isaiah Wagon Miller got out really easily a lot of the time. Didn't get huge disposal numbers, but when he got out, it was really noticeable. There was also a big gap in pressure, with the Saints applying a lot more. They were plus 15 in tackles, despite winning this game by six goals. St. Kilda transitioned far too easily, and Richmond didn't handle the ball well throughout this game, even though Dylan Grimes is the only, you know, older player in that defensive core right now by league standards. They looked old and and slow in defense. They were outmatched. Max King tied his... Oh, sorry. Um, I forgot how we did this for a second. Max King tied his career high 
with six goals. Yeah, he's uh, he's just fine. It was also a return for Seb Ross, and he was noticeable there. Even though he's 30, he's still damn fast and fits the profile of the Saints team really well. Basically, this game just went step one, either contest win or pressure. Step two, possession. Step three, speed. Step four, profit. I've got a question. Did Richmond kind of know they were done for? Is that why they rested guys last week? Or was it just, I think it was still a dumb decision? I uh, I don't know. They weren't done for at that point. Again, I thought that Bulldogs matchup was a quite winnable one for them. Dustin Martin came back and Trent Cotchin still held out. Next week will be his finale in Victoria. I mean, at this point, with them clearly out of things, I wonder, does he even play round 24? Does he even play at court? I hope he gets a good setup. I hope the team is able to lift for him unlike they did in this game. Although it will be really, really, really fucking funny if they lost to North again, as I mentioned earlier. Tigers weren't able to get one-on-ones a whole lot in the 450. So they didn't have to create mostly from pressure on the ground of the 450. But that didn't translate on the rest of the oval, which was really disappointing. They badly needed another solid 450 mark besides Jack Revolt and... I thought between Tony Nankers and Avon Soldo, if you hadn't both of them on the oval, one of them would be able to get out enough, but that wasn't the case. The Saints' back line held up really well. Good games again out of Cal Wilgie, Josh Battle, Liam Stockard carrying well out of the back, and Zayn Cordy with 10 intercepts as well playing back. We've seen him go forward at times when Max King and Tim Membry have been out. Oh yeah, welcome back Tim Membry as well. But Cordy providing extra tall coverage in the back definitely helped here. The Saints now only need one win out of their final two games to make the eight. Those two were tough, though. Yeah, hosting Geelong this coming Saturday night at Marvel. They did beat the Cats at Marvel last year. Cats have not lost at Marvel this year. And also, the Cats didn't lose again that season after losing to the Saints then. And then they finished round 24 Saturday afternoon at the Gabba. So, still a difficult road ahead for them to make the eight, but if they can punish with pressure and speed as a whole team, like they did to Richmond, and pummel the Cats through the quarter, as a lot of teams have managed to do, then I see no reason why the Saints can't kill the Cats' season this coming week. I'm just thinking more about Richmond. It sucks that, you know, Josh Gimkis has been hurt all year. Robbie Tarrant didn't play this year and retired. We didn't get to see a lot of their potential I still think they're going to be a major contender in years to come. I don't care if they don't have draft picks in the next couple of years. You have Tim Taranto and Jacob Hopper. I'm I'm not concerned about big picture for Richmond. I don't know if they're like a top four contender anytime soon, but they're definitely a finals contender in coming years unless they decide, well, there are so many teams in this thing that we want to retool. Considering what they've done to get Taranto and Hopper, I think that's unlikely. I think they're going to be going for this thing for a while. The other question is... What's the deal with coaching? I mean, Andrew McWalter is definitely in the race, obviously, but I don't think by any means has locked it up. We know that Josh Carr, the Port Adelaide assistant, has taken his name out of the running, and there and there are rumors of a succession plan there with Carr taking the head coaching job from Ken Hinckley. I forget what exactly we've heard about Collingwood assistant and former Brisbane Lions head coach Justin Lepich there, but I think he's content where he is. He ruled himself out, it seemed, in July. So, uh, shrug, question mark, whatever the case is. It was clearly time for Dimon to move on, and he realized that. But uh, one thing that has stuck with Richmond, despite Damian Hardwick's departure, since he said, I hate coming here, 
referring to Marvel Stadium. The Tigers are 0-7-1 there. Thank you, Noah Cumberland. Thank you, Jake Arts. Jack Sinclair led the game with 33 disposals. He had 10 marks and gained 639 meters. Again, welcome back, Seb Ross. 25, 8 marks, 7 tackles, and 538 meters gained. He does provide a little bit of that chaos, but it's a chaos that really worked in this game. Rowan Marshall with a goal, 23 disposals, 20 hitouts, and 9 marks. We've praised him all year, and rightfully so, that the Saints have managed to let him play all over the field while he's still the main ruck is one of the best parts about Ross Lyons' style. Jack Steele and Liam Stalker both had a behind from 23 disposals, Stalker with 9 marks. Cal Wilkie, 19 disposals and 11 marks. How about Jade Gresham? Was demoted to the sub a couple weeks ago, and he's played pretty inspired footy since. Kicked the first two goals of the game, ended up kicking three goals, one from 22 and two goal assists. We'll see where he is beyond this year, but he fits this side really well. And as I said earlier, Max King with 6-1. He has now kicked six goals three times in his career, once in each of these past three seasons. Tigers were plus 20 on hitouts, but Rowan Marshall has made himself a very effective player even when the hitout numbers are not good. Uh, Dustin Martin, two behinds off 26 disposals. Jaden Short, 26 disposals, 7 marks, 727 meters. Tim Taranto, a goal, 24 disposals, 7 tackles. Shea Bolton, a goal, a behind, 23 disposals, 12 contested possessions. Nathan Broad, 22 disposals, a goal, and a fun celebration. He had just had a kid and did like a rocking the baby celebration. That was cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a pretty common celebration for uh, new parents. It's just his third career goal, and uh, I guess that goal was for Samara. Dion Prestia, 22 disposals. Thompson Dow, behind, 21 disposals. Cam McIntosh also had 21 Toby Dan Curvis, a behind, 28 hitouts, 16 disposals, and 7 tackles, and Nick Flostone, 10 intercept. For some reason, I think Nick Flostone is younger than he actually is. He's 29, but damn, is he important to this defensive group. When they've been winning as of late, it's been in games where he has really controlled the game with intercepts and kicking out from halfback. Port Adelaide, 21-10, 136, defeating Greater Western Sydney, 13-7-85. A triumphant return for the magnificent Tribolt jumpers. Damn, those things look good. We also had uh, the old number font on them as well, which is the first time we'd seen that in our four years watching the sport. Still weird to me that the power wore those jumpers against a club that didn't exist when they initially wore them in, I think, 2003. Having said that, the coach against whom they were playing wore them then because Adam Kingsley was on the power then. So maybe that had something to do with it? Still, though, damn, these things look good. The power of Bulldogs and Hawks have all played really well in retro jumpers in the last couple weeks. The Saints had done it earlier this year as well. Uh, these need to stay full-time. Wait, these look... We're also just suckers for teal in general. Probably comes from our, our love for the San Jose Sharks, partially. But... It just worked really well here, and I hope they keep it around as an alternate. I think every club each year should have, you know, I think four jumpers, one of which includes like a white jumper, enough to cover other clashes, and also some sort of throwback or heritage jumper. These things look excellent, and they played excellently in them. Unfortunately for GWS, this puts a major, major dent in their finals hope, especially with the Swans jumping up ahead of them as well. They're at 44 points. They host Essendon and then visit Carlton to end the year. Suddenly, may that standalone final home and away game not mean anything? I mean, I think 
for it to not mean anything, they'd have to lose to Essendon this week, which I still see as unlikely. It, it's possible. Happened last time. What I've said about GWS, though, you know, they already met all their requirements for the season. They've had a damn good year, and even if they get absolutely clapped in their final two games as well, they've done way more than anyone could have ever expected out of them. Unfortunately, this game kind of went the way you would have forecasted them to be at the start of the year. A team that's got some offensive ability, good midfield, but wasn't there defensively. Uh, Nick Haynes and Jack Buckley, who had played really well for a lot of this year, did not play well in this game. Haynes ended up getting subbed out. Even Sam Taylor had his struggles at times because Todd Marshall will do that to literally anybody. So nothing wrong with that. I think Todd Marshall is one of the best contested marks if not the best, in the entire game. To give a glimpse of how dominant this was, it was 67-26 to at half, and two of the four goals that GWS had scored were off of really bad calls. One where Alir got called for a push on Jake Riccardi, where he literally, like, gently placed his hand on Riccardi's back for half a second. It's the type of thing that the NFL would have gotten the roughing the passer call if it was against Tom Brady. Then, Riccardi later got a goal where... He clearly pushed Kane Farrell in the back, but if you're a forward, I, I guess you can do that. Lead was as big as 86 to 33 in the third. I will give the Giants some credit. They got the lead down to 35, and it was like, ooh, man, if they get one more, things could be interesting. But Jason Horn Francis kicked back to back goals. He also kicked the final goal by breaking past a Sam Taylor tackle, which isn't supposed to be possible. It, it, it was really funny the way this worked. So, Horan Francis finished the game strong. You know who started it really well? The person who was confused with Jason Horan Francis by a lot of people this year, including the Adelaide Advertiser. Miles Bergman had never kicked more than two goals in a game. He had not kicked a goal all season. He just hadn't been playing forward. Uh, yeah, three goals in the first quarter, because why the fuck not? Three goals and 11 disposals by quarter time. He got quieted down after that, but he was on a heater to start this game, and it's... He's not going to get mixed up with his brother if he's doing stuff like that. He he played really well. You know, the difference is also Miles plays on a team that actually wins most of their games. We had GWS, to their credit, like I said, they played this game out. They didn't just pack it in, but they got beat pretty thoroughly. Horn Francis, very good. Rosie, Butters, Houston, all the usual guys there. Uh, having a healthy Willem Drew and Kane Farrell certainly makes a difference. Drew played last week, but wasn't anywhere near as noticeable as he was this week. Farrell was really sharp as well. And I thought, you know, he ended up getting subbed out, but Sam Hayes held his own against Kieran Briggs. This was not one of Briggs' best games. It, it's funny, if you had asked me what was going to cost GWS, because I did not think the Giants were going to win this game. You would have expected, well, they're playing without Brent Daniels and Toby Bedford. That probably is going to hamper them offensively. And I mean, that did. They still scored 85 for the game. Yeah, um, like Bedford's speed probably would have helped in the midfield, but they got beat in the midfield and they did not defend well. When they actually got into the forward third, not half bad. Zach Butters led the way with 34 disposals, nine marks, and seven clearances. He had, you know, early in the year been in the Brownlow conversation, kind of fell out of that, but has still played pretty darn well overall. I think there's still a very outside chance if he gets top two performances in these next in these last couple games, which are up for grabs. I think still if anybody takes it from Nick Day, I think it's Valley's to lose. The Brownlow predictor on AFL.com has not been perfect, or I've personally had my gripes like with a couple of the ways it's they've given out or projected to give out votes for for Geelong this year. Interesting. 
with round 22 votes. And again, this is not the be-all and end-all. It's got Dacos at 30, Taranto at 27, Neil 26, and then Bontempelli and Dawson each 25, and Butters 24. I I still think Bont should be higher than that. There is still a world, though, where Nick Dacos has already done enough. It's possible. We may be living in that world. Maybe there are still more guys in this race than we thought. I mean, Petraka's projected at 23. With Oliver back in, it's, it might be a little more difficult. But you've got seven guys projected between 23 and 30, which, again, I do not think that's completely accurate. I'm looking forward to some Bradley Light drama again like we had last year. And this, this only has Brian Myers for three votes. Like, he should have votes out of the Essendon game. He's projected with three votes from Port Adelaide last week, and that's it. So that, yeah, this is not a, an exact science. But it's going to be a race, which we didn't think for a while. Unfortunate that it became a race through injury, but yes, it'll be a race. Dan Houston, a goal, 30 disposals, 10 marks, 698 meters gained. He may end up being one of the highest placing defenders on Bradlow Night. He could end up in the Golden Fist conversation. Bang. Connor Rosie behind 29 disposals and 9 score involvements. Ollie Wines a goal in 29 disposals. Jason Hart Francis, 3-1, 27 disposals, 531 meters gained. Willem Drew, 21 disposals, 7 marks. Jeremy Finlayson, 2 goals, 3 behinds, 8 marks. And very active in 4 ruck contests, played a big part there. Willie Rioli, 3 goals behind, 7 marks. He's been on a nice roll lately. The good second half from GWS kind of watered down these numbers, so inside 50s were only 65-51. to 51. Power rolling 9% more efficient in there. There were very few hitouts in this game in general, just 54 total, 38 of which went to the Giants. The uh, Port won stoppage clearances 23 to 14. That was significant. And they recorded 28 more marks. I will say it didn't mean much because it was lopsided, but I like how Josh Bay, he played second half. He's a fun player and not just because of the long sleeves. Yeah, the GWS defense, uh, Buckley, Haynes, Harry Perriman, Isaac Cumming, not up to their usual standard. Coming at a really rough first quarter, and I think that just kind of set him up to begin with. You know, he had a telegraphed kick that got intercepted to lead to a goal. He had a dropped intercept mark that could have led to another. Guys who have been really solid this year, better than we expected, had an unfortunate stinker, and it was a lot of guys having a stinker at the same time, which you know, it happens. It's only the second time all year GWS has really gotten their clocks clean. For that to only happen twice, with the expectations for them at the start of the year being somewhere around 15th or 16th. Pretty good. I can't criticize them. Unsurprisingly, it was the Greens that led the way for the Giants. Unlike in Congress, Tom Green, no trailing E, kicked two goals straight from 31. Toby Green, with the trailing E, was inserted in a lot more center bounces in the second half. He kicked 2-2 for 27 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 7 appearances at 539 meters. Was not a great first half, but I like that he didn't give up. You know, the old Toby Green would have probably looked at this game, looked at the margin on the scoreboard and done something to get suspended. And the new Toby Green just keeps working and playing hard all the way to the final siren. Two rounds to go for a suspension-free season for Captain Toby Green. We did not see that coming. And I don't mean Isaac. Harry Himmelberg with 27 disposals and 510 meters gain. He again has signed on to stay at the Giants. That is huge. Lockie Whitfield with 27 and 568 meters. Josh Kelly and Talon Ward with 25 disposals each. Jake Riccardi kicked four goals, one from seven marks. But again, only two of those four goals we see as legitimate and deserved. That said, ever since the game against the Cats, where it was like, really, this is the guy who's going to hit the dagger? 
He's actually played really well. So well, another guy who's responded very nicely after we called him out, after I called him out. He had kicked two goals prior to that Geelong game through his first five games this season. In the 11 he's played since, he's only been goalless twice, and he's kicked 24 goals. Sam Taylor had 11 intercepts, but playing against Todd Marshall is tough for anyone, even if you are the best one-on-one defender in the AFL. Sorry, Isaac Quainer. He's up there, but I'd, I'd, I'd probably take Taylor. It is awards time here in round 22. We begin with the Mark of the Week honors. It was a Crows sweep, actually, for a Mark and Goal of the Week this past week. Shane McAdam won the Mark honors, controlling on a second effort coming down from a Mark over his own teammate, Riley O'Brien. The round 22 nominees on Saturday you had Kazi Pickett going over the top of Alex Chincata. Didn't control it much on the ground, but was paid. On Sunday, Aaron Naughton crashed into a pack, and it was largely against James Blank. And Shea Bolton went over the top of Mason Wood, both of them going up for it, but Bolton's vertical ability is pretty insane. I like Bolton's more than Pickett's because of the control he had, even though Pickett's was more impressive in the air. If Pickett had brought it down, that probably would have been Mark of the Year. But he didn't, so I'm going to go with Bolton. Yeah, he kind of straddled Mason Wood. I thought it was a pretty impressive one. As for goal of the week, your round 21 winner, like we said, it was a crow sweep. It was Taylor Walker beating Jared Witts for a throw-in, running through a crowd, and kicking a bouncer from the left pocket. But we've come to realize that Australians really like these goals coming out of rock situations, coming straight from stoppages. You think back to Sam Draper's goal of the year last year. Yeah, I we both like Errol Goldens more. Uh, your round 22 nominee got Will Day taking the ball from a stoppage, breaking a Jack McRae tackle attempt, and finishing from straight on about 35 meters out. We got Nathan Broad fielding a Naziah Wagonine Miller kick, getting away from Dan Butler and kicking his third career goal from the left pocket. He also had a pretty good celebration after rocking the baby. I think one of his teammates was like doing it first, and then he did. He, I assume he had said before, like, hey, if I score, I'm going to do this. And then you have Sam Powell Pepper. Receiving a Willie Rioli handball and hitting a big right snap on the run from the right pocket. That's my pick. It's interesting also that your three nominees came from each of the games on Sunday. But yeah, Pal Pepper is the winner here. The kick is the most impressive going toward the boundary like that. Makes me think of the stuff that Bo McCreary did last year in round 23. Even when the Blues make finals this year, that heartbreak will still be funny. And uh, speaking of the Blues, main character talk. Last week's main character, we gave it to Michael Voss. We weren't really clear on on like one obvious main character last week, but Voss beat Ross for the first time. Blues extended their winning streak to seven then. It's now at eight. This is their longest winning streak since 2000. Got a pretty obvious main character for this round, I think. That being Caleb Marchbank. Yeah, we're not... We, I was thinking like his R or something, but then we're not sure which part of his body touched the ball, so we're going to go with his whole body. I was going to say his right forearm, but we'll just go with the body, the person, Caleb Marchbank, the first Caleb to ever play in the AFL, surprisingly enough. No Caleb's had played in the VFL and AFL before 2015, and he's situated himself in the back line pretty well since coming back in a few weeks back. Could also heavily consider the arc to be a main character with the umpire's call on that decision. Honorable mentions as well to Jeremy Cameron for his seven-goal performance in the controversy around a couple of those as well as Jai Newcomb just bulldozing through the Bulldogs all day on Sunday with his 40 disposal showing and being the highest-ranking player of the round. 
Now, before we go, we did get some news in the making of this episode of a couple retirements and then a big signing as well. So just want to digest those quickly. We saw the writing on the wall for both of the retirements, honestly. Firstly, Patty McCartan had been placed on the inactive list after another concussion this year. It was a very soft hit to the head that caused it. Once you see something that looks so insignificant causing those sorts of injuries, you can kind of understand that he was toward the other things, despite the ability that he showed last year, which makes it all the more disappointing. Would have loved to have seen Patty and Tom be able to play in the Swans' back end for longer, but clearly wasn't meant to be. And let's hope that Tom doesn't have the same lasting concussion issues as well. He had a scare earlier this season. Also, one of our favorite players, one of the most exciting, electrifying players, really, as far as we know, over any period of time, looking at how he's compared to you know the history of the game, especially from the ruck position. Nick Nathanui is retiring. Another one that, like, like I said, we saw coming. It sucks. Would like to see him play more. Makes the ruck position exciting. One of the first players that I really enjoyed watching. You know, I think one of the first players we recognized as well. I mean, between the dreads and just the more unique approaches he took in the center circle, that's understandable. His Achilles injury robbed him of a lot of his vertical ability, and that was a big part of his game, obviously. Didn't take many marks, averaged under two marks a game, but when he did, they tended to be pretty big ones. He won Mark of the Week honors eight times over the course of his career, which is second all-time, standalone second. Um, Jeremy Howe has the most with 18. Biggest hope now is that Nick stays involved with the West Coast Eagles, both as a ruck coach, being able to mentor this newer generation, as I mentioned in my Western Derby talk, and that he stays involved with his Natanui Academy and some of the indigenous and minority groups that the Eagles assist. He's a type of person that you really want at your club. I'd love to see him get some more opportunities as a commentator as well. We enjoyed the uh, couple times he was a boundary rider with seven a couple years back. Yeah, I'd definitely like to see more. Also, just as you said, having more commentators and boundary riders that aren't forwards. And the other big one that dropped last night, uh, Damian Hardwick's been coached the Suns. Yep, Ralphie reports it's a five-year deal for Dima, so maybe he wasn't that burned out after all, or maybe he realized, oh wait, they're more lenient on cannabis in Queensland. I think it. Um, the Suns went to Italy to meet with him. Yeah, I believe Mark Evans did, and that may have been where the deal was sealed. So at this point, is Stephen King just a lame duck? I mean, I guess because he's not going to get the head coaching job. You wonder now what the assistant situation will be there if they keep some of the people on. How many people Hardwick may be able to draw away from his old Richmond staff. And all the while, we don't know what's happening in the coaching race there as well. So Richmond, their transition will continue and we'll see what kind of a hit their coaching ranks take. And for the Suns, we think they can get there soon. Hopefully Hardwick is the right person to make that happen. However, I also see that his presence at the Suns also making them inherently a bit more hateable for a lot of people. I mean, I think he's pretty enjoyable. It's, I just realized the real highlight of this they hardly ever play at the G. Most of their Melbourne games are at Marvel. So just off that alone, this is a good thing. It means more more of him at Marvel. Also, the fact that he's coaching a club that beat him after the siren, and that it was someone who grew up a Richmond supporter that kicked that goal, Noah Anderson. So a couple small things there, but we'll obviously talk more about 
all that once the news becomes official and as we head into the offseason. Long way to go before that, though, and this episode will probably be long enough as it is, so this is where we'll cut things off. As always, you can keep following our footy thoughts throughout the week when we're off the air on Twitter at Americans Footy. We're also on YouTube at that same handle. I am on Twitter personally at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNameBrian. And that's a wrap on episode 127. As of now, we're in line for our 138th episode spectacular to be our grand final preview.